Before we begin today's episode of The Political Performance, a short message from WNTH. Hello everyone, this is Chase Avery, station manager here at WNTH. Just wanted to let you know that Nutris Habitat for Humanity is having a pie fundraiser by Fasano Pies. A portion of the proceeds will benefit Nutrier's Habitat for Humanity. They are also selling yard signs for $10, so be sure to check them out on Instagram at Nutrier's Habitat. Thank you. You are listening to The Political Performance with Casey Bertaki on WNTH 88.1 or The Political Performance, the podcast. Hello and welcome back to The Political Performance hosted by Casey Bertaki on WNTH 88.1. This is a weekly debate and discussion show covering multiple political issues. My name is Casey Bertaki and I'm the host of this show. Each week, I'll have one or two guests on my show to discuss or debate a certain topic. If you're interested in coming on the show, please email me at thepoliticalperformance at gmail.com. While the political performance itself is not a politically biased show, our guests will be sharing their opinions. There are multiple sides to every issue, and the political performance does not endorse or side with any particular views. With that being said, let's get to the show. Today we have another debate. The topic is an extended discussion of capitalism and socialism with a focus on the approach to a free market. We have joining us today Van Crocker, a freshman and policy debater for Nutrier. Van is also a writer for the Nutrier Political Journal. Van, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for uh, inviting me of here. Course. Uh, we also have Jack Hansen, a junior at Glenbrook South, who is the vice president of the school's political discussion club and runs the North Shore Political League. Jack, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Casey. Of course. I'm going to be asking each of my guests questions about the topic, and they can discuss or debate it themselves how they want to. Um, so I guess we'll start with Van. Um, could you briefly describe your position um, regarding economic theory, specifically in regard to the free market? So personally, I consider myself a libertarian socialist. I believe that, I believe that uh, capitalism is just as much of an oppressor as state can be. Um, I don't necessarily dislike the idea of a free market. I just, I just believe that within the capitalist mode of production, um, it is oppressive. However, I don't think that markets are, um, I don't think that a, mar- a free market is impossible within a socialist framework. However, I do think that uh, within a capitalist framework, it is oppressive. Okay. Um, Jack, I have the same question for you. Could you explain your position regarding economic theory, specifically in regard to the free market? So I believe in a nearly completely deregulated free market economy in which the government has very little say over what the economy does, because I believe that allows the free market to grow and to do what it thinks that it's necessary to do in order to, you know, have a much better society. And I feel like the less government is involved with the market, the more you'll see people being able to innovate and create, and that'll lead to the betterment and advancement of humankind. So I believe that the government is only really supposed to protect people from each other and everything else is up for the individual. Okay. Um, so, Van, what regulations do you think are necessary in an economy and why? Uh, I think that consumer protections are extremely important. I also think that environmental protections are necessary to keep to keep large corporations or small businesses from polluting. 
given the fact that um, given the fact that ninety percent of emissions are from are from seven are from seven corporations. Uh, sorry, ninety percent of emissions are from one hundred corporations. I believe that it is necessary for the state to intervene and disallow um, pollution. I also think that worker protections are necessary, as as we saw in the Gilded Age and in times before large union membership. Workers were being paid exceedingly low wages and were not receiving the products of their labor. So I think that environmental labor and consumer protections are necessary for a free market to function correctly or for a market to function correctly. Jack, if you want to respond to that, or do you want me to give you another question? I mean, I feel like a lot of the issues people have with capitalism is not the actual free markets, the regulations that are put in place and the subsidies that are put in place. You get a lot of big energy companies in the U.S. receiving massive subsidies and bailouts from the federal government. And that's not capitalism. That's corporatism. You know, in a free market society, the government does not pick favorites. The government does not say, all right. I'm going to give you a sweetheart deal and I'm going to regulate stuff to put in your favor. That's not capitalism. That's corporatism. I feel like that's a very different thing. And I feel like people associate regulations and, you know, bailouts with capitalism. I think it's a very incorrect thing to say. So I, so I can, I can understand that. And I, and I can agree with you, but I also think that capitalism is also sovereign from the idea of a free market. Capitalism is defined as private ownership of the means of production, while free markets can be fluid. They can exist both within a socialist and capitalist framework. Personally, I think that, I think that free markets can only be achieved and can only work for everyone within a socialist framework where people are not expected to work or die, if that makes sense. Okay. Well, um, how would you be able to most properly allocate resources in a, you know, socialist market? Like basically, how do you, uh, what's your refutal to the economic calculation problem? Uh, could you elaborate on that question? I'm sorry. Basically, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but under a a socialist system, there's no prices and there's no currency as you know, that's one of the things that, um, well, that's communism. Those are, these are sovereign things. Okay, well, what's the difference between socialism and communism then? Socialism is the socialization of the means of production, the workers owning the means of production. Communism is the complete abolition of the commodity form as well as abolition of currency and... as well as abolition of currency and state. Socialism is often, is often defined as a statist, yet as a statist form while communism abolishes the state as well as commodities currency etc so they are absolutely different things so you would disagree when marx uses you know socialism and communism in a very interchangeable method as well as Engels. like you would disagree with them using socialism and communism interchangeably could you give me an example of that uh throughout das capital there are multiple examples of both you know marx basically saying that you know all socialism is is a transition into capitalism and not capital. Oh no, that's communism. that's correct. Oh no, that's correct. But they are also sovereign things. Okay, so correct me if I'm wrong, but under socialism, then there would be you know a price system using currency. Um, yes, there would, and I, uh, yes, there would. So how would that like not lead to you know inequality? Because there are some people who are naturally more ambitious and are more 
currency driven than other people. So the way that the way that I think um, free markets can be achieved within a socialist system in a fair way is that workers cooperatives, unions and is that workers cooperatives um, replace private corporations. Workers control every every stage of the means of production. They're able to elect they're able to elect their managers, the leaders of their company, and they all receive the direct value of what their labor creates. I think that I think that there are some, that there are some people who are more motivated and driven than others, and those and those people can still work can still work at higher levels. However, however, they cannot be completely sovereign from the people that they employ. Um, the, they should be held accountable just as much as our leaders in government are held accountable. They should be subject to elections so that people with skill can be elected to those positions and workers receive the value of what they create rather than what someone at the top considers the value of what they create. But isn't, you know, value subjective though, you know, it's given a marginal utility because for example, if I'm buying, you know, three gallons of water, is that worth three times what one gallon of water is? And that's just, and I don't, you know, I don't think it is like you, does it take three times the labor to create three gallons of water as it does one gallon of water? Well, here, let me give you a counterpoint. Say that there, say that someone is creating a car and that car is valued at $40,000. Okay. Yes. There's one person, there's one person who puts in say 24 hours of labor to create one fourth of that car. Another person puts in, well, uh, let's just say, let's just say that in this situation, they're each working just as hard, but just for different amounts of time. One person puts in 24 hours of labor and makes one fourth of the car. The other person puts in 18 hours of labor and creates half of the car. And another person works for six hours, creates one eighth, the next person works for four hours and creates the last day and they finish up with a completed car. So the value of each of these person's labor can be split down to the amount of car that they created. If one person created one fourth of a, one fourth of a car, they should get one fourth of the amount of capital that is derived from selling that car. Well, what about the person who has to go sell the car? Because like people, there's still like, correct me from there would still have to be some form of competition in a you know in a system like that and people would have to say all right well why should i buy your car as opposed to this person's car would how would sales you know be equivalent to, you know would that be a part of the labor process like what part sure every 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 stage from the create from the um acquisition of the resources that are used in creating this um hypothetical car to when it is in the hands of a new person, every single part of that is within the labor process. And although I simplified it to a, to, to a more understandable manner, I think the best way that the value of one's labor can be determined is by free discussion and is by free discussion and a democratic process between the laborers. If one person considers that their labor is worth a certain amount and the other person considers that their labor is worth a different amount, then they can discuss and find the, and find the amount of money that they deem their labor to be worth. Isn't that just capitalism, though, where you say I work for this amount of money, and you know there is no hierarchy in this system. There's no one person who can veto it. There's no one person who can fire you from a job 
for asking for a raise or for discussing the amount of money that you're paid. There's no, there's no situation where you are discouraged from discussing your wages with fellow workers such that the people at the top can count their money and you are left in the dark. I wouldn't say that this is the same as capitalism. It's, it's socialism within a free market. Okay, but then how would you, you know, like, but still, how would you figure out pricing for stuff? Because, like, if everyone is, you know, saying it's just labor, what about stuff that's, you know, like, market is market research also part of, like, for this car? There's more than just the labor that's going into manufacturing the car. What percentage of the labor would, like, I already mentioned salespeople. What about the people who designed the car? What about the people who are, you know, shipping the resources to go make the car? What about, you know, the people who have to you know, do maintenance on the factory? Like, what part of the, uh, what do they get? They get whatever is discussed. They ha- the point is, they have democratic control over how, over how much they are paid and how much others are paid and how their workplace functions. You know, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not going around asking people who believe in liberal democracy to define exactly how many taxes are paid by everyone. Because a tenet of democracy is being able to determine tax rates and laws and things like that. I'm discussing a system in which the free market would exist within a socialist framework. I'm not discussing exactly how everyone would be paid because that's not a question that I can answer. Okay, but, but still, there would still have to, there would be some inevitable hierarchy though because more pe- certain people would be doing more labor and therefore they would get compensated more. And, you know... What prevents those people from, you know, trying to overthrow the socialist system for a capitalist one? Armament of the laborers. But what if the laborers, you know, agree with the, the capitalist? Why would they? Well, this, capi- this capitalist is coming out and saying, okay, so I've worked really hard. So you guys should give up all of your democratic rights to be, to be paid a fair wage. You should, your wages should be determined by me. And but it's not you, determined and, by you. It's the tr- it is in a lot of aspects determined by the labor. Do you have a job? Is for, it? Do you have a job, for example? No, I do not. Okay, so I have a job and I work, and you know when I worked, I you know, you ask how much do you make, and you basically and they say all right, like I get paid ten fifty an hour, and I basically mm-hmm. I agreed to that price. If I didn't like that price, I can go work somewhere else. That's not the situation that mo- that many working class people are in. But but that is there only one job opportunity available for working class people? Is there only one solitary opportunity for people? For a lot of for a lot of these people, absolutely. You're for a lot of these people that there's only one of, solitary these, job opportunity for these people. For a lot in a lot of situations, yes. For example, say you're work say you're working in a small in a small town outside the city. You you live in you live in a tiny apartment and the only and the only job that you can reasonably get is one that you can walk to. You don't own a car. In a lot of situations, you can only have access to one job. In a lot of situations, people don't have the time to leave their, and to leave their job and go search for another one. As three-fourths of Americans cannot survive and cannot, cannot bring out $500 at the drop of a hat. 90% of Americans would only be able to survive three weeks if their main source of income stopped. But that, so, that, that's not my point. My point is that you said well, there's only my point, my one point opportunity is, for, but like, for example, if you said there was only one place to walk, 
you you mean to tell me that there is only one opportunity of employment in this situation? My There's point no- is, it is it is not a fair argument to say they could just get another job. They could just work somewhere else, because often that is extremely difficult for people. Often one is one is working a job because they need to pay for basic necessities. As within our current system, you lose your job. You lose if you lose your job, you lose your insurance, you lose your house, you lose any any way to receive food, and especially in your system where all where all welfare is completely destroyed, Medicare is gone, and government is completely out of this process, then there is no safety net. You either keep your job, make whatever amount of money you can bring together, or you die. Are you free? Public charity exists now, and I have you know no reason to believe it would stop existing in a completely free market system. Like public charity is is by definition a is by definition a system that can only go so far. You know how give is it out, by definition a system that can only go so far? Well, because it's vol- because it's in all in all respects voluntary. People only give money when they have a couple extra bucks, and there's no permanence but that's One not can... that's not even true though the poor are on average more likely to donate money than the rich as a proportion of their you know income why is that because they i i don't know why that is for i don't know the you know the psychology of you know charity and i don't claim to be an expert on that but if okay we, but like you're saying that the only people who have the only money to give are the ultra rich when that's just not true you know i, I, I didn't say that then, then what did you say? You said you only have when they what I what I mean is that charity problems. has is that charity has no permanence. For example, for example, I met a homeless person very recently who I gave a few dollars to to go and purchase food, and I asked him like, why aren't you, you know, why why aren't you in a home? There's a home like a little bit, a little bit down the road, and he said that they have the right to deny him to sleep in that homeless shelter. He has been denied multiple times. There is no permanence to charity because it is voluntary to let any of these poor people live. There's no permanence to charity because that income can stop whenever somebody feels that they don't want to donate anymore. So your issue is that you don't think that it should be voluntary. People should my be issue, not- My issue is that that, volunt- is that that voluntary nature denies thousands of people the ability to feed themselves if we are completely relying on a system like charity then we have no safety net then it is just a voluntary system that maybe could get you a couple of dollars so that you don't starve and so so that's the nature of the system it is voluntary and it has no permanence i mean well you could argue that the system is like a state mandated, like mandated system. Well, you know, is not completely permanent either. Because, like, look at you know something like social security. You know, there are going to be more people who are paying like out of social security and receiving social security than there are going to be people paying into social security. You know, that's not a permanent system. It has it has more permanence than the than the choice of one or two people stopping their donations. It's a legal process, and within it, and also, I'm not a social democrat. I'm not simply advocating for a welfare state. I'm just saying that within your system, even the very, very baseline systems that we currently have disappear. 
you said that like a couple people donate to charity and I'm like that's that's not true like i from what i understand at least half of the country donates to charity every single year and on average like the average family like annual charity donation is a couple thousand dollars that's not just you know chump change that's a substantial amount mm. okay Do you think that a system like that you are describing has been implemented or has been attempted to be implemented? Well, um, in a few cases, yes. For example, in Rojava, um, as well as Catalonia during the Spanish Civil War, um, my my ideology... Catalonia had some very specific issues, you know. Like, they had a issue with, you know, like, purges and, you know, violent suppression of, you know, dissenting opinion. Catalonia was an anarchist state. There was no state. There was no state that executed stuff like that. The ones that were the ones that were executing that was authoritarian communists and fascists infiltrating, infiltrating their state. I thought you said it was stateless, though. Sorry, infiltrating their commune. I apologize. I used the wrong word. Well, what's preventing that from happening in your uh, current system and like the system that you are? Uh... They were in a. They were in a state of civil war. They were in a state. Uh, they were in a state where they were in a state where fascists and republicans and authoritarian communists were directly attempting to were directly attempting to um, nullify their power. There was also foreign inf- foreign influence from Germany and Italy during that civil war that was directly attacking them. And okay. well, uh, wouldn't that happen? Like in any other scenario, because I, I guarantee you that, you know, the the bourgeoisie would not be willing to give up their power. And if, you know, this were to happen, there would have to be some form of, you know, not necessarily civil war, but class warfare. How would you prevent that from happening then if there was a. Uh... Well, um, you see, in Catalonia, in Catalonia, civilian civilian armament was not at a level that I think would have been necessary for the revolution. It was a, it was something that came out of a situation that nobody expected. It was not a, it was not a prepared commune. It was a react, it was a reaction to the situation that Spain was in at the time. I think that when, I think that with proper preparation, it can be much better executed. Okay, but like, what it, what is preventing other groups from you know trying to counter this or you know trying to set up their own state? Because I I do not believe that you could have a peaceful transition into socialism. I just I don't think that's a, a feasible solution. So I get I I believe that there would have to be some form of war. What if another side gets involved and you know? I think that you can have a peaceful transition into socialism. I just think that there may be resistance to it. Which is why, which is why workers' militias must be armed and created. What's preventing people from turning those workers' militias into, you know, not necessarily workers' militias, but into something that, like, is used to, you know, be authoritarian? Because, like, you see that with a lot of other, you know, attempts. Like, you could argue that a lot of other attempts to, you know, advocate for some sort of socialism starts out in a way where it's you know supposed to be for the worker but it doesn't end up that way like how would you prevent it from going authoritarian well i think that i think that one of the greatest um 
that one of the greatest hamperings to socialism is authoritarianism. For example, Lenin from the get-go was an authoritarian. He advocated for a, sta for a status system where, where, the, where those who resisted would not, be, would not be taught, but would rather be shot. I think that that rhetoric and that construction of authoritarian systems is a great degradation of socialism. And I don't think, and I think that the only way that we can create a beneficial socialist state is to keep authoritarianism out of it. Well, how would you be able to keep authoritarianism out of it? Empowering the workers. Okay, but like you see in a lot of other, you know, countries, it it doesn't start out where you know people are getting violently murdered. It, you know, it goes slowly. What's preventing, you know? Can you give me an example of that? Uh, what do you mean? Like, uh, it, like it doesn't start out bad, but it continually gets worse. Uh, well, what exactly you, are you referring to? Well, I, I feel like in general, when you get people who are authoritarian, who rise into power, a lot of them rise from a place of, you know, peace. Like, like take, for example, Hitler in Germany. He did not start out from a point where he was rounding up the Jews and putting them in concentration camps. Okay. It started with, you know, manipulation of the media and convincing, you know, the public that, you know, the Jews were the common enemy. And, you know, it leads with six million Jews dead and killed in one of the most worst examples of, you know, human rights violations in human history. What well, he, he came from a place of authoritarianism. He had long, he had long advocated for the, strengthening, for the strengthening of the state, for the merger between corporation and state, as Mussolini would put it, um, and, for, and for the destruction of Jewish culture. He had long advocated for that. That didn't come out of nowhere. It was merely a, an evolution of where he started. He took, he took the systems of power in Weimar Germany and he turned them towards his own use. Weimar Germany was already a, well, a relatively authoritarian state. Um, it was, was already a well, relatively authoritarian state. Um, President von Hindenburg was, not, was a very direct man. I don't really know where I'm going with this, but what, I, what I'm attempting to say is that Weimar Germany was not some anarchist commune. It had power structures, and Hitler had long advocated for the use of those power structures and utilized them to execute his will. Okay. All right, so how would um, would there be some sort of socialist stock market, or would that just would that not exist as well? Like, how would everyone have equal ownership in a uh, in a worker cooperative, or how how would that work? Everyone, everyone within the workers' cooperative would have would have equal ownership over their company. Each of them, each of them, um, while they are working at that company, own. A part of it, but I don't really think a stock market is in any way possible to be added into a system like that. So, okay, so would someone like a you know a manager or an overseer have the same amount of you know stake in the you know a company as someone who's like a janitor? Would they have the same equal amount? Or yep, yes, because they all have the same democratic right over that company. Or I, I, I prefer the I prefer the word cooperative because company or corporation is inherently capitalistic. Okay, then what's preventing, you know, the 51 from controlling the 49? What do you mean? 
Okay, so let's say there's a, you know, if this is a an auto working company and 51% of the people want something to happen, but 49% of the people want something else to happen. Like, let's say, for example, there's the people who are, you know, putting um, like tires on and the people who are putting the fenders on the car, let's say they make up a majority of the company. Mm -hmm. What is preventing them from saying we should get, you know, more compensation than someone else? Like, how do you deal with corruption like that? I think, uh, why do you think that corruption would exist? Uh, because I believe there's a part of humanity that, you know, inherently wants more than other people. Like, so, so I actually, I actually want to deconstruct that notion because I feel like that is something that is often pushed by advocates of market capitalism. And I think that it is, I think that it is a very poor, I think that it is a very poor argument. Can I extend upon that or do you have any questions? Well, I mean, then why would, you know, why do you have some people who are, uh, I, I would say, obsessed with, you know, hoarding wealth and trying to become as wealthy as possible? Like, I would say that those people just not exist or that comes out of a place of necessity, in my opinion, or at least it begins that way. Um, these people have defined their have defined their social strata. But why people hoard wealth right now is because. We have, no, we have no promise that we'll be okay if we don't have large amounts of money. I have one question. Okay. For example, um, Elon Musk, when he sold out, when he cashed out PayPal, uh, he had $200 million. Right. Why, um, what like, need, does, does, other than his own desire to, did he have to go start up SpaceX or uh, Tesla or any of the other numerous companies that, you know, he has created what like what drove him to do that other than you know the advocacy from because he already had 200 million dollars you know sitting in the bank he didn't have to spend a dime of it and he could live the rest of his life very very comfortably mm -hmm. why did he go and start the boring company go and start spacex go and start tesla and you know take the you know well he didn't start tesla um he purchased tesla why would he do that, though? Like, why would he put all of the money into that? Well, he... uh, a few a few reasons. One, I believe that with that with with wealth within our capitalist system comes influence. When you have massive when you have massive amounts of wealth, you are able to influence government policy. You are able to you are able to purchase protections, force for in. In Elon Musk's, in Elon Musk, not a free market economy. In that's... Elon Musk's case, for example, he utilized his wealth to overthrow the Bolivian government and and keep um, socialist Evo Morales out of power until very recently. But he didn't do that in order to acquire Tesla. But why did he want to acquire Tesla in the first place? Is my question. Well, I'd say to make more money. I'd say it's very simple. That's my point. Okay. Yeah. What 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 exactly are you trying to say there? What is preventing someone from you know, like I said, like I said, the fifty one from trying to exploit the forty nine percent? I don't really understand how you're connecting these two things. Elon Musk wanting money and um, how fifty one oppressed forty nine. Can you can you try and connect those things a little bit better? I okay, so let's say, like I said, there's a uh, hundred people working at a uh, factory mm -hmm. and. Um, one guy promises to get 50 other people really rich, but they, you know, in order to do that, they'll have to raise their wages 
and cut the wages of the 49. What is preventing them from doing that? Well, I would say that this that this democratic control and the fact that pe- and the fact that people's needs are already provided for means that people don't feel the the necessary need to make more money. Where but where there are where money there are multiple people who do though a lot within this current system within within a capitalist system. If you were to look at if you were to look at say Catalonia or Rojava or the Soviet Union socialist states you didn't see people you didn't see people um going out of their workers soviets or cooperatives and attempting oh, there were to make tons massive of, there money was tons of corruption there was you know oh no 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 I, I, I do not deny 20%. i i don't no, yeah, the russian mafia controlled 20 percent of the economy that's that is by definition going out of a workers commune like that's the russian mafia was not condoned by the ussr government like that's Okay. That is okay. that is going out of the system. Okay, USSR was a poor example. I'll concede to that. But um, but within these anarchist states, without power structures, I would say we that never. They... I would agree that we never had a. There was never a state like that that existed for long enough for there to be examples of that because Catalonia only lasted uh, three years, or you know, n- none of these have lasted long enough to where you could get a clear example of how something like this would play out, like. I, I don't believe three years is long is a long enough time to evaluate an economy and say that you know well, you, well this well in your saying that you that means you can't prove that this that this principle uh, this principle of of these people in this system without power structures working to gain massive amounts of wealth you can't prove that that would happen you're just you're just saying that it you're just saying that it may happen off of your own view of off of your own view of human nature, I and I don't, I don't really think that that has any scientific backing. Well, I'm I'm not saying you're wrong, but my point is that you cannot point to one of the you know you cannot point to revolutionary Catalonia as an example for it working when it only lasted for three years and it wasn't able to you know fully play out. If it if it lasted for twenty thirty years, I you could argue that yes, that maybe this is an example. Are you familiar with the burden? You know, are you familiar with the burden of proof, Jack? Vaguely, but um, can you? So the burden, so the burden of proof is an argumentation principle that states that one must prove that something is or something is happening, rather than, rather than one must prove that something doesn't happen. For example, do you have to prove to me that um, invisible elephants don't exist? No, no, I do not. No. no, you don't. I would have to prove to you that invisible elephants do exist. Yes. Yeah. That's you know that's just the basis of science. You have to prove that something is rather than rather than prove that something isn't. Therefore, in this in this situation, you are trying to prove to me that that within this anarchist framework that I advocate, um, people would be searching for ma- would be searching for massive amounts of wealth and would oppress others for it. However you don't provide any example of that. I'm providing examples to you of states that ha- of states that have existed where it did not happen. And so I don't really think that the point that you're playing right now has any real logical or physical, logical or physical backing. My argument is that you didn't have a state long enough to, you know, actually legitimately set up a legitimate economy and a you know, peaceful method. Okay. You know. Well, 
revolutioning it wasn't exactly like a it was not a place where you could have a legitimate non-war i wouldn't say wartime economy but a legitimate stable economy it was undergoing it was undergoing war like that's not a like typical economy okay well i will say again that that i i don't have to disprove your point because you have not proven your point you've not you've not given me any example of of within this theoretical or within the applications of this theoretical um, society that any, that any of what you're saying will happen has happened. I think that people search for massive amounts of wealth because one, we live in a system where if you do not have a baseline amount of money, you can starve to death, you can be denied healthcare or basic hum- or other basic human necessities. And in our current system or within a free market system, Money buys influence in massive amounts. It allows you to overthrow governments and it allows you to overthrow governments and determine what world governments do. So I think that the reason that people search for wealth within our current system is not because of human nature, because, for, because capitalism has only existed for 300 years at a, in, lar- in large Why amounts. did people search for wealth before that? Like, why did you have people searching for wealth before that then like Mansa Musso why why was he capitalism did not exist in you know the year 12 I would say the feudalism I would say the feudalism is also is also an applicable um an applicable reason for this people people searched for wealth because it allowed you say a position in the king's court or influence over it however in 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 tribal states um at the birth of humanity, people weren't searching for exorbitant amounts of wealth to, because that exorbitant amount of wealth didn't allow you to influence others. They simply searched for what they needed. I, I would argue that they weren't like focusing on that because they were worried about more of their own survival. Once civilization, you know, started to, you know, and mass civilization started you know, to take place in Mesopotamia, there were clear social classes, you know, within the founding of city states. Like if you look at Gadolayuk in mm. like modern day Turkey. There were like clear classes. If you look at Mesopotamia, there were there were clear classes. If you look at you know Egypt, there were clear classes. Like if you look at all of the you know the examples of like the earliest legitimate societies, there were always some form of you know social hierarchy. So why do you think that's a part of human nature rather than just an evolution of how a society is constructed? Because I feel like as a, you know, people, there are, you know, there are groups of people who, you know, like are going to be inevitably more popular than others. And that's just, I believe, a part of human nature. Like we, you know, we idolize people as part of, uh, you know, like even I would argue like with people who disagree with class, like you, like there's some level of idolization for, you know, Karl Marx or Frederick Engel or like there, there's some form of like idolization to people like that, whether, you know, I, I disagree. So there, there views, are, there are, multiple, but there are, a, there are multiple different forms of hierarchy, hierarchies of hierarchies of wealth, you know, hierarchies of influence and say hierarchies of skill. You can stay within a socialist system. You can still be better at one thing than me and may, and may within the workers cooperative that you pertain to be elected to a position to execute that thing. You could be better at argument. You could be better at argumentation, or at building a car, or fixing lawnmowers, or some other skill. 
those skills don't exist and one can still be better than somebody else at one thing or another. What I'm saying is that that should not translate into massive amounts of societal influence and oppressive amounts of wealth. Just because you're good at leading a company or at leading a group of people doesn't mean you should be able to determine whether they live or die or how much wage or how much wage they may be paid. Well, once again, I, I, I feel like we disagree on, you know, how much, like, as the boss of a company, how much, you know, say they have on um, you know, work employed. Because if you don't like the wages you're paid there, you can always, you know, you disagree with me on that. But, like, you can go and work other places. That's why, you know, you get people like Henry Ford, who when he was working, he paid his people exorbitantly more than other people relative to the area. And so people flocked to go work at his factory. You know, he was paying them $5 a day, which was way more than everyone else was at that time and it led to higher productivity and it led to you know increase in the field to work for him so where i think we fundamentally disagree is that is that i disagree with you on the fact that labor um within a capitalist framework is voluntary um i don't believe that labor is necessarily voluntary because we have because we are coerced into it. Um, there is there is there is a fundamental would... use of coercion because because without working to make money, without acquisition without acquisition of liquid capital, you cannot afford food. You cannot afford to feed yourself, your family. You cannot live in a home or pay for healthcare. These are necessary things. How would that be any different than a you know? Social these things are, provi- if, these if things work, are provided for so that you can have it without yes, working so you can have a baseline or, so you can have a baseline standard of then, living whether you're able to work or not then what's preventing people from not working so you're saying that the only reason like, your what, system what, works correctly is because people do work or die and that if we t- and, not the people so so what what you okay. are what you are disagreeing with me on here if and i may be misinterpreting you is that is that people are only incentivized to work because our current system denies denies people basic rights? Because no, so, I'm not so why that. so why I'm do basically you think, saying that why do you think that if these basic rights were provided for that if someone that if someone could go to the doctor if they needed it that somebody could be fed clothed and housed why do you think that stops labor from occurring? Why do you think that stops people from getting because employed? Because then, okay, if you know that, uh, for example, if you know that you do not have to go work and you are going to get, you know, provided for, are you going to go Absolutely. get a job? Because I, because I take pride in being able to work. But, but let me, let me take that. So you know that if you don't work, you're not going to die. If you don't work, you will still be able to live. You will still be able to live in a home. You'll still be able to feed yourself, and you'll still be able to drink and be clothed. That's what I. That's what I think the baseline should be. And I think that if the only threat that keeps people working is the fact that if they don't work, they don't get those basic things. They don't get to live. Then our system is morally disgusting. If the only reason people are incentivized okay, to work is because they die or freeze or or are subject to sickness, starvation, dehydration. If they don't work, then our system is based upon oppression, and I don't think you can deny that. 
I, I wouldn't argue that that's oppression. I'm saying that like that's that's part of human life. If you don't work, you know, and that's you know, throughout human history. That's not just now. If you didn't go work out in the fields, if you know you owned a farm, you know, your crops would fail. What about and you would what go about die. people with and, disabilities? What about what about somebody who is physically incapable of working? Given the fact that given the fact that they don't really have any ability to work, should they just die? Uh, like I said, no. Their family can. How do you know they have a family? And well, who gave uh, who gave birth to them? How do you how do you know that somebody will be? Do orphans just not exist? How do you know that in this? Okay, well. Yeah, somebody somebody has somebody has a what percentage what percentage of our society is orphans though? There are there there are currently like three hundred thousand people in foster care. This isn't this isn't a group that you can just negate. And I'm also saying that what if what if this person specifically was living what if this person but, specifically Yeah, in foster care, aren't they in someone else's home this, though? That is a government they, they system. Have Wouldn't that be abolished within the system that you advocate? You don't think that people like, you know, there, there's a waiting list in, you know, for adoptions in multiple states. You don't think that, you know, what I say is that if somebody is unable to work, what happens to them? If they if they are living alone, if they have if they have a if they lost a leg fighting somewhere, or if they just lost a leg because that's how they were born, what happens to them? Do they are they provided for or do they die? I would argue that losing a leg does not, you know, mean that you are unable to work. Like I work with mm-hmm. a disabled person, mm-hmm. you know, they're missing an arm and they're, they're still able to function. They have a, some people arm aren't and they're still able, able to, to work. work. That's what I mean. Not everybody, not everybody is inevitably able to go out and get a job. Some people are, some people are pregnant and need to have time off to give birth to their child and to take care of it. Maternity leave. What happens to the, what happens to these people? If if welfare is if welfare wouldn't is it be dismantled, any, okay. But wouldn't it be any company's best interest to keep the employee? You know, from actually no. training. You know, actually in no, a lot of jobs. These okay. company, because um, prior to prior to the strengthening of the Department of Labor, um, mothers mothers um, could be fired from their jobs simply for getting pregnant. So, and and they and they, and they were. In you don't think that there would be large amounts. So I know I don't think it's in the company's best interest. You don't think there wouldn't be companies that wouldn't do that though? Okay, so th- okay, so let's say you know I was pregnant and okay. I had a uh, I had a child, and um, I worked as I don't know a um, you know a consultant, and um, you know they fired me. Now they have to go and find someone else to go do that job, train them to go do that job, and then you know transfer all of the clients that I had, and that takes time that takes money and that takes you know that takes another person willing to you know yeah that's the situation and that's also how it happened for a very long time women women uh who had children or women who were pregnant had a much harder time getting a job and were often fired from their job if they were if it was found out that they were pregnant because it's a lot easier for companies to employ someone who isn't going to have a kid and who is going to be able to work 100% of the time. So I ask you again, if somebody is unable to work, if somebody is forced to leave their job within your system, when there is no safety net, when there's nothing for these people to fall upon, what happens to it? 
these, there's a any number of scenarios. You know, there are people who do hire, you know, with disabilities. There are, you know, private charities that are willing to take people in because those those do exist now. And like there are places where people, for example, with um, take Down syndrome, for example, there are you know places that take people like that. And um, there's always the option mm-hmm. of family. That's another option. And yeah, and I feel like you know, while there's a you know aspect of selfishness in humanity, there's also an aspect of selflessness. And I feel like while you do have one, you will have the other. And there are you know, because in a lot of areas, charity also looks very good for a business. On a point, if a you know, if a company is doing charitable acts, people point to that and they say, "Wow, look look at what you know, look at what they're doing." Whether you know, for whether you agree with it's ethical or not, like look at you know a lot of the stuff people are doing with, you know, activism where, you know, companies are making a stand and, you know, supporting Black Lives Matter and donating money to groups like that. And it, it's it been successful for them. Like take uh, take Nike and supporting Colin Kaepernick. They've, uh, people thought it was going to be a loss for them, but, you know, it's been nothing but good for them. Like they've okay. gained support for that. And I think you will find a person who wants to go support people like that and will do it through their you know own free will because that that happens now, okay i would argue well that's all the time we have for today thank you both for joining us and thank you all for listening whether it's through spotify anchor or wnth 88.1 remember there's multiple sides to every issue and it's always interesting to talk to people with different perspectives i'm casey Rutaki. stay political Thank you.